Within the Acts, and as you get there, uh, I think that video was proof that our teachers are doing their job, as I looked at the faces of our kids, saying, we did that last week. I was like, that's okay, that's all right. They knew that, I think that's a win. So Acts Acts chapter 9 is where we're at today page 535 in the blue Bible in the chair in front of you. Today's a long service, but today's a good day, is it not? It is a good day to gather. Any day to gather with God's people is a good day. And it's a great day on top of that when we get to witness God's grace in his life and partake in communion together. And I also am reminded that I think the job description between a lawyer and a pastor is not very different, uh, as that was not five minutes. <laughs> All right, last Sunday. Last Sunday we were, saw how Jesus creates a new people, a new person. Not just nice people is what we said And I was talking to an individual this morning. We don't compare ourselves to other people, but we compare ourselves to who we were. And we see the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we become more like Christ. This isn't a comparison game that God is creating here. But he does call people to himself, and he creates a new people. And that's what we saw in communion today. As the Father chose, and the Son redeems, and the Holy Spirit seals, this is the, there is a marked change in someone's life. And as we get into Acts 9, we'll see that there's a marked change in Saul's life. And we get to see what that looks like. What does it mean to be a new person? So in Acts 9, I'll be on verse 19, which is starting right at the above of that heading, Saul proclaims Jesus in the synagogue, and it goes like this. The word of the Lord says this. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 23, And When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through the opening in a wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple." But Barnabas took him in and brought him to the, disciple, the apostles and declared to him, them how on, the, how on the road he had seen the Lord and who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke there, where seek, uh, sorry, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, 
they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we come to continue to worship you through the preaching of your word. This is not a passive activity, this is an active activity as we seek to make much of you, as we learn more of who you are, as you have shown yourself to us specifically in your word. So Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified. I want to speak of you and praise your name. And Lord, I cannot do this on my own. So by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed and use this sermon, God, to bring glory to your name, joy to your people. And as we have witnessed already, Salvation to the loss. And amen. In verses 19b to 25, there's a radical call. And remember, last week we talked about what a radical really means. It's not like the surfer guys from the early 90s who went around calling everything rad. Radical means complete, thorough. And when we talk about a radical call, we mean a complete call, a thorough call on Saul's life. And a radical call brings immediate change. In verse 19, we see that Saul spent some time with the people uh, and the Christians that he was seeking to arrest. Right off the bat, we see a distinct change in his life. No longer is he seeking to destroy, now he's spending time with them. There's something different. And in verse 20, this radical call immediately brings him to proclaim Jesus. Out, the outcome of Saul's radical call is a proclamation of the one he was seeking to persecute, Jesus Christ. It doesn't take long for Saul to start up his ministry. And maybe he begins to think to himself as he begins to reflect upon the grace and the mercy that God so lavishly poured on his life, maybe he begins to think, wait, who else needs to hear the very thing that I had just heard? Who else needs to hear this good news? God's grace in his life didn't allow him to sit, but immediately go proclaim that Jesus is Christ to the very people that were like him. So he goes straight to the synagogue, and there's a clear heart change that has happened, that's happening. No longer does he have the same heart of stone. He now has a heart of flesh that not only enables him to believe, but pushes him out to proclaim the message about Jesus. And he uses all of his educational background. We've got to remember who Saul is. He was raised in a in, in, in very strong Jewish tradition. He was taught the Old Testament from beginning to end. He knew it. He had, had to memorize it. You know, some of us are struggling with Titus. That's a small book. Now, you know, most of the Bible, if I were to go like this, like most of it is Old Testament, right? They would memorize that. He would took all of, that, all of that knowledge, all of that education as a tool to go and proclaim Christ. And what I find amazing about this chapter is that the effectiveness, effectivism, sorry, the effectiveness of evangelism strategies are important. So don't hear me say that they're not. But what our confidence should be in is not in our own abilities, but in the Word of God. We need to know the Jesus we seek to proclaim we need to know Jesus we claim to know as he has shown himself specifically in his word and if we are to properly proclaim Christ to those around us. 
So he, got, he comes and he immediately proclaims Jesus as what? The Son of God. And this is a huge thing. This is a massive thing. And here's why. Remember what Saul thought about Jesus. He thought that he was, a, uh, he was an imitator, an imposter. He thought he was a blasphemer. Now he's saying that Jesus is the Son of God. Now he's saying what Jesus said while he walked upon this earth is true. His claims are true. To be the Son of God is to be the same nature as God. The Son of God is of God. And we know the statement was blasphemy to the Jews because they killed Jesus for saying that. And now Paul, or Saul, is going around, he's switched his complete, everything has changed around him. Now he's proclaiming the very thing that he hated not so long ago. That Jesus is the Son of God. It was this claim by Jesus, again, that the Jewish leaders killed him for. But in Hebrews 1 verse 3, we see it very clearly that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So Saul is proclaiming that the man who died on the Roman cross, who was buried, who three days later rose again, was not an imposter, but is in fact the long-awaited Messiah who would die for the sins of his people so that for all of those who repent and believe will have life. In verse 17, we're reminded a few verses back that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is the outcome of being filled by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit convinces, convicts of sin and of righteousness and judgment, but he also regenerates. He, he gives us a new heart that enables us to believe in these truths because, again, there's no way that Saul was even moving along the road into belief until God radically came into his life. The Holy Spirit sanctifies, which means he makes us more like Christ, as we were reminded in Ryan's testimony of how there's changes in his life. That is called sanctification, which is done by the Holy Spirit for all of those who believe in Jesus Christ. We see the work of the Holy Spirit immediately happening within Saul's life, which is coupled with a change in behavior. Saul originally comes to Damascus to go to the synagogue to snuff out the followers of the way. And now he's proclaiming Jesus in the very synagogue that were at one point his allies. Jesus is the Christ. And this proclamation is showing a repentance and a belief in Jesus. His proclamation is showing how radical God's call is. And Saul has moved from being an enemy of God to a friend. We were all in that state before God radically called us. And that's why I love baptisms. That's why I love reading our new members' testimonies. That's why I love these things, because it reminds me of what God called me from and to. And I begin to worship and praise God as I reflect upon that. We were all enemies of God. We were all in a state of being dead. And like any dead person, we were unable to bring ourselves to life again. This is something we deserve because we have sinned against the holy God and our right punishment by a just God is hell. The Bible describes those who don't believe in Jesus as objects of God's wrath, but it doesn't end with that, but God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who steps down from his throne to pay the price for my sin, my rebellion, that I could not pay because I'm dead. And he brings me to life again. 
giving me a new heart that enables me to believe. Believing that Jesus is sufficient to pay the price for my sins so that I may be saved. This is the gospel that Saul is believing in. This is the gospel that is radically changing his life. And the question for you and for me, as I look at Saul and as I look at what God has done in his life and what that pushes him to do, the natural question is, is, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus' call on your life is just as radical? But the Jews start to notice things, right? Because that's what happens when you're different. You stand out. And the Jews start noticing this change. The Jews in Damascus in verse 21. That there's something different. And they say, wait a second. Correct me if I'm wrong. But isn't this the man, they say, who was going around ravaging the church? We go through this life wondering if we have even grown in Christ sometimes as Christians. And it's a great encouragement to have someone say, hey, I've seen the grace of God working in your life in this way. To be reminded that God is still working in us. And even here, I think God is using the Jewish people as kind of, even though they're probably ridiculing him and will seek to kill him at some point, to notice that there's something different about Saul. Let's remember who Saul was in Acts 8. He was a man who was ravaging the church and entering into house after house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. This is a completely different Saul. So in verse 22, the Holy Spirit fills Saul and he strengthens him to do his call. And Jesus did say that Saul will be a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel. And the Holy Spirit is empowering him to do just that. See, Saul, as I was saying, is an expert in the scriptures. And now with his change of heart, he is using his expertise to, uh, against his former mission. He's a, he's a double spy. He's like the worst guy. You know, sometimes you're arguing with someone and they've, uh, the, when you see a person who is a staunch atheist and God gives them that new heart that enables them to believe, now they're like the greatest believer ever known. They already know all the arguments on the other side. They're like the worst enemy of anyone And this is what's happening with Saul. So in verses 23 to 25, the change was so great and his arguments were so strong that the Jews just wanted to kill him. It's amazing what happens when pride gets in the way. Instead of acknowledging their sin, they double down and dig their heels in even more. And we can't argue against something biblical, so they just get angry. And that's what's happening here. And Luke creates another contrast between two hearts two types of people, one heart of flesh that has been radically changed as we see in Saul and the other heart of stone that continues to reject Jesus Christ. And the Jews actually bring even the Gentile authorities of Damascus into their master plan to try and seek and kill him. We see that in 2 Corinthians. But Saul doesn't seek out persecution, but Saul also doesn't shrink from persecution. And this is shown in how he continues to proclaim Christ wherever he goes. But God's plan for Saul is to be his witness 
will bring suffering and persecution. So suffering is a means and not an end to itself. And all of this is showing a behavior change. He will, his willing to suffer for Christ and give up everything else because Christ is far more valuable than even his life. So check out this graphic. This is by Visual Theology. They have, I like graphics. I like pretty looking things. I was going to make a comment about why I married my wife. <laughs> but this is called the true life change diagram. And you can see it, spiritual awakening, true repentance, new behavior, receiving forgiveness. This just keeps going. As the more I grow in my understanding of who God is, I'm more convicted of the sin that's in my life. And then I repent of that sin, which means I turn from that sin. I lean heavy into Jesus Christ being sufficient. And with that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, a new behavior begins. That's why Jesus says to his disciples when they ask, hey, how are we going to know who's a disciple of yours? And his response is this, you'll know them by their fruits. To call yourself a Christian means that there's a new behavior. I'm not saying perfect. By no means. But there is change. There's a true life change, and it's a never-ending cycle, and that's what we see in Saul. In fact, as you read through his letters that are later on, you begin to see more and more of how Saul, then Paul, continues to grow in the grace and the knowledge of his Lord and Savior. See, God's sovereignty and providence is so evident in Saul's conversion do you see how the word of the Lord continues to increase as it faces even opposition? Geography, none of these things stop it. Ethnicity, no. Human sin, no. And God in his sovereign providential will will use Saul to continue to increase everything that is needed to be done. And we see it right here. In just a few days, God is already using Saul to proclaim Jesus Christ, to grow his kingdom. So the anger gets so strong that the very people that God has called to himself through Saul's witness, so the disciples of Saul, have to get him out of Damascus through this hole in the wall uh, because the gates are guarded. See, Saul's change is ongoing. But what we begin to see is that the radical change has immediate effects. Saul has experienced what, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, that he is a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Are there things that God will continue to work in Saul's life? 100%. He does end up having a big fight with the very person that we are introduced to here. Because growing in Christ's likeness is never an ending process. As God exposes our sin, we repent of our sin. But a radical call brings immediate change. And through the change, gospel growth happens. Not only for Saul, but also for the church as well. Because in 26 to 31, in verses 26 to 31, we see a radical call brings gospel growth. In verse 26, it's interesting. 
we see how uh, he begins to go from Damascus to Jerusalem. But in Galatians 1, so the writer of Acts in Acts 9 is a man named Luke, but he doesn't really show that there's actually a three-year period of time between him going from Damascus to uh, Jerusalem. And I think as I was talking to my dad this morning, it's a great reminder that discipleship takes time. But it tells us, but we see that. But Saul gets to Jerusalem, but everyone remembers him as the old Saul. They don't believe that he was a disciple. I don't know why the news of him traveled so fast the other way and not the other way. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if it may be about gossip or something. We have a tendency to latch on to the bad things and never to the good things. On a side note, it's amazing to hear how when we pray for other churches and we pray uh, and we think and praise God for baptisms, you hear an audible praise God. That is very cool. But Saul gets to Jerusalem and no one remembers him as an old Saul. They only remember him as the old Saul. They don't believe that he was a disciple. And this really shows how bad Saul's persecution was. Three years had passed and the disciples still only see him as the one who was ravaging the church. That he, was, that he wasn't, they don't even see him as a forgiven sinner who was learning Christ and repentance and faith. And I wonder what Saul thought as he walked back. What an amazing grace he would have to rest in as he's literally walking to the place where he was ravaging the church. He had to face some nastiness. He was the one who ravaged the church, the very people he was seeking to be part of. I was reminded of this quote by Corey Ten Boom, and if you don't know anything about Corey Ten Boom, you probably should. Uh, from World War II, a woman that God used, and she said this, look within and be depressed. Look without and be distressed. Look to Christ and be at rest. In Christ, he was a new man. In Christ, he had a new identity. That in Christ he was made alive. In Christ he knew he was unfinished. In Christ, as Romans 6 says, he knows that he's free. In Christ he knows that he's justified, as Romans 8 says. In John 1, he would have seen that he is adopted. As he wrote again in Romans 8, he understood that in Christ he is secure. And as he gets there, they don't believe him. Before you harp on these people, let's be honest with what we do. Every once in a while, uh, I'll bump into someone from elementary school or high school, which is always weird, right? And, they, and inevitably, the question is this, what are you up to? And so I tell them, I'm like, I'm a pastor. And they look at me with this confused and dazzled look because I was not the public speaking type. I don't, believe it or not, I don't really like it. And you're doing what, they say? I can't believe that. All those people have a picture of what was but haven't seen what God has done. And that's exactly what's happening. So, verse 27, we see Barnabas. He was a disciple. 
And God used him to show the church in Jerusalem and to tell them about all the changes that God has done. And just imagine as Barnabas was relating all the things that Saul had done in Damascus, how he was the one preaching and proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. Imagine the response of the church that was once being persecuted. Is there anything that God cannot do? No. See, Barnabas... His name means son of encouragement. It was a nickname that the apostles gave him, and his actual name is actually Joseph. He was a prominent member of the early church, and we see him actually in Acts 4. But Barnabas would become Saul's companion. And in Saul and Paul's early years of his ministry, here Barnabas is the one that vouches for Saul and what he has done. As it says, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. He also brought Saul to Antioch, which would serve as his home base as, as Saul goes out on a mission to the Gentiles, telling and proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He would go with Paul on his missionary journey and join him in defending the gospel in all of those areas. He would actually fight for those Gentiles who don't need to be circumcised because Christ is enough. It is Barnabas, the encourager, who brings Saul to the disciples and tells him all that God had done in and through Saul. He is the one who vouches for Saul, telling of all that God has, was and is doing in Saul's radical change. So in verse 28, we see that the church accepts him on the basis of this testimony, and he belongs to the community. He's partnered with them in community. He's partnered in the way that he goes in and out of them, and as he's going in and out, he's preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul could not be shut up. He continues to proclaim Jesus Christ wherever he is, fulfilling exactly what Jesus says to Ananias that he will do. He had the best news possible, and he was going to tell it from the mountaintops. And whatever doubts that the disciples may have had still, they must have gone really quickly when they saw Saul on the corner preaching Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Are you excited for the gospel enough that you'll go and tell others about it? I saw an interview of a man named, uh, there's a magician duel, and everybody should know him because it's funny, called Penn and Teller. But if you know anything about Penn, he's an atheist, a staunch atheist, an angry atheist. And he actually had this interview that I saw, a little clip of it, and I don't know the context, so if it's wrong, please forgive me. And he essentially he said, look, if the gospel were true, if the gospel is true, that means hell is true. And if hell is true, and you love me like you say you love me, why would you not tell me? His actual argument against Christianity is Christians not telling the gospel. So Saul understood clearly that he was what he was saved from, that he, what he, and that's what motivated him. 
If it wasn't for God's radical call in his life, he would be still dead in his sins. But God, being rich in mercy, calls Saul to himself, and Saul desires others to see the same radical call, that call that only comes through the preaching, the bold preaching of the name of Jesus Christ. So in verse 29, he see that his preaching was so effective that the Hellenists, now, when did we hear about this Hellenist before? He was holding their coats as those people were stoning Stephen. The people couldn't stand even that. They couldn't stand Saul preaching. And it was so effective as the Holy Spirit continued to move that they again sought to kill him. Saul was preaching the gospel. And sometimes we get shocked at someone, that someone gets offended by the gospel. But the gospel is offensive. It's offensive because to those who hear it, they're confronted with the truth about their sinfulness and the need for a savior. The gospel message is a message of both grace and as we talked about earlier, in judgments. And that is, the, that is the Holy Spirit who convicts people of their sin and brings them to repentance and faith. The gospel message isn't only offensive to unbelievers, but also to, it challenges the Christians like you and I, right? And it calls us to live in a life of obedience to Christ. I don't know how many times I've been called obedience is legalistic. The gospel message calls the believer to die to themselves and to live for Christ, which can be a very hard and difficult and sometimes very painful process. But the gospel is offensive in its nature because to believe the gospel is essential for salvation for all those who hear it. That's why we strive to communicate the gospel with compassion and love while also recognizing that it may be difficult for some to accept. See, I don't need to be offensive in the gospel. The gospel is already offensive. I need to get out of the way and proclaim the gospel because I can be offensive. But even God works through this to continue to increase his word so Saul, he can't stay in Jerusalem anymore. So the brothers, the, his now brothers, who were not brothers not so long ago, need to get him out and bring him to another place. So they travel a few hundred kilometers to a place called Caesarea, which is a port city. And from there he goes to Tarsus. Do you see the outcome of a radical call that, brings, that God brings on someone? Everything changes. Not only, his, not only Saul's relationship with Jesus, but also his changed relationship with others. He has a new family. And he continues to preach the gospel wherever he goes. In verse 31, we see how there, there must have been hundreds of churches from many churches in many cities to now whole regions are now, what are they at? They're at peace. Because the prime persecutor is now God's. Saul reflects on this in his letter to those churches in Galatia, in Galatians 1, who says, And I was still unknown in person to the churches in Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to, do, to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. See, God continues to build his church. 
as he continued to call people to himself, as the gospel was being boldly preached, as God continued to grow his church, he was, she was, the church was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you, what does it mean to fear the Lord? The fear of the Lord doesn't mean fear of final judgment, because as Christians, we've been saved from that. For the Christian, it means we've passed through judgment safely. And what the fear of the Lord means is a fear in terms of godly awe, reverence, and devotion. The Christian has become more aware of who God is. Like we will see in chapter 10 with the man where it says, and a devout man who feared God with all of his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. But with the growing knowledge, there, there, uh, there's a fear of God's displeasure and fatherly discipline. Like we see with Ananias and Sapphira as God disciplines them in Acts 5. Walking in the fear of the Lord is an important part of the Christian life. To grow in the fear of the Lord is to have a growing reverence, a growing awe for God's holiness and his sovereignty, which leads to a desire to obey him and live a life pleasing to him. The more I become aware of what God has saved me from, why would that not cause me to grow more in love? As I grow more in love, why would that not cause me to be more obedient? So walking in the fear of the Lord is a lifelong process of what he's done. It's an important part. And we do that as we continually gather together as we worship, as we get together in God's word, as we are in good community with one another through prayer, through the study of scriptures, and through fellowship. But what does walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit look like? It's actually really closely tied See, the more I grow in the walk, in my walk of the fear of the Lord, the more I understand who God is and what he has done for me, I can be in more comfort because I know who he is. That's why this sentence ties these two things together. As a Christian deepens their relationship with God and becomes more like Christ, they are increasingly comfort, comforted by the Holy Spirit and experience a greater peace and joy in their lives. This again happens as we seek to grow through prayer and studying of God's word and through fellowship with one another. So they grew. They grew in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. But did you see what happens as they continue to do that? They multiplied. See, the church wasn't putting their emphasis on human wisdom. They weren't hoping in some sort of wisdom or their own strategies or techniques to grow the church. They were relying upon the power of God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit. They weren't worried about entertaining people in order to get people and to keep people. Instead, they were emphasizing the teaching of God's word and developing a deep relationship with Jesus. They weren't worried about prosperity and trying to preach a message of prosperity and material success as a way to attract people. And they weren't, as we've seen in recent years, worried about gaining political power as a means to grow the church. Look, what we see with Saul and the church is the opposite. Whenever the church places its hope in anything other than God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit, we risk 
losing our effectiveness and becoming focused on our wrong priorities. We must remember that our mission is to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ from all nations and that this can only be accomplished through the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. Gospel growth within the church, within me, within you, is when we draw deep into the glory of Christ. Gospel growth is when we are more and more impressed with God every day. And gospel growth causes us to grow in the gospel and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. That this all happens when we grow in the fear of the Lord and that's in the, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see right here. And the outcome, it multiplied. It continued to grow. Because growing disciples are evangelizing disciples. As we continue to walk in the fear of the Lord. It's a short sentence, but it's important. How could Saul continue to do what he did if he didn't, wasn't one who continued to walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit? How could the church continue to multiply while it's by walking in the fear of the Lord and, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit? The radical call on Saul's life and the other disciples brings gospel growth. So what you ask? What does it mean to be a new person? It means a sign of a new life is a life that is growing in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And what this does for us is it brings confidence in our, in our faith and our ability to share it with others. It also makes us more compassion. Believe it or not, growing in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit makes you less of a jerk. The comfort of the Holy Spirit helps us to empathize with others and to show them kindness and grace, even when they're hard to love. The fear of the Lord deepens our convictions of the truth of the gospel. It allows us to cooperate more with others as we seek together to, walk, to share, other people, share with other people the good news of Jesus Christ. On Fridays, when Pastor Chris goes out, it's not just Knollwood that's going out. It's that other like-minded churches coming together to declare the goodness of Jesus to the people who are lost. A sign of a new life is a life that is growing in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Let's continue to worship our awesome God. God, strengthen us in the gospel. Draw us deeply into the glory of Christ. Make us more and more impressed with you today. Cause us to grow in the gospel and walk in a manner worthy of it. To have a, a growing hunger to know you through your word so that we may prize and pursue your holiness as you strengthen our burden and our commitment and our endurance to strive after holiness in our lives. And as we seek to walk in the fear of you and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, may you continue to use us to grow your kingdom here in London and to the ends of the earth. And amen.